You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimal of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! For example, I had a director, we were doing this fancy nightclub scene with all these gorgeous women. And this is a famous director who will remain nameless for the purposes <laughs> of this podcast. And I just could not get him to focus on getting the work done because he was like flirting with all these <laughs> yet gorgeous women. So I called his wife and I said, why don't you come visit us on set? And she <gasps> wow. came to and the day went much quicker after that. <laughs> Welcome to another edition of 2020. I'm your host, Benny Goodman, with my cohorts in crime, which is trademark pending, Siobhan Cronin. Hello. And Corey Peza. Hi. Pronounce Corey Peza. That's true. That is the correct <laughs> like, pronunciation. Very similar to Corey Peza. You want to know a life-changing moment for me today? I realized on Facebook that you can tell people how to pronounce your name. It actually pulls up like all the different oh, audio clip, like ways of pronouncing. So now people don't have an excuse for mispronouncing my name. You can go to Facebook and click pronounce this name. You're going to have so many creepy friend requests now. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, this week we have a very, very, very esteemed woman in the Hollywood community. She has worked on such films as Philadelphia, LA Confidential, Ghostbusters. Like the list is literally ridiculous drew ann rosenberg yeah yeah you're basically go back through your life and think of all the great movies you've seen and, and she's probably had her hand in them and this Literally is the ultimate behind hand. the scenes moment you know hearing from somebody that worked in all different angles of producing these films you know being involved on the set a lot of cool stories yeah. it's simply staggering and i just gotta tell you you have to listen to it to understand how important being an assistant director in hollywood in the 80s yeah, and, and Drew is, is super knowledgeable and really gives us a behind-the-scenes look at how the, uh, the entertainment industry works. So I think you're definitely going to want to tune into this one. So here it is, part one with Drew Ann Rosenberg. Subscribe. Ladies and gentlemen, it's technically the first episode of 2021 for us here on the dais. My name is Benny Goodman. I am here with my friends, Corey Peza. Hey. And Siobhan Cronin, although it always should be women first, so that's what I want to teach you guys in 2021. <laughs> right. I've made a resolution. I've already broke it. Welcome to 2020. And I am so very, very, very pleased. And it's only because I'm friends with Paul Geary because he knows everybody and introduces me to the coolest people. But we have one of the most important, honestly, I, I can't even tell you the accolades of this woman. In Hollywood, but also a personal dear friend of mine. Give it up for Drew Ann Rosenberg. Woo! Cheers. Woo! Uh, thank you. Thank the golf you. Clap. Yeah. It's quite quite an impressive uh, resume that you do have. Um, you know, you're a, you're a director, a producer, a writer, basically a, a filmmaker in every sense of the word. And you know, just just glancing at your your IMDb page, you got Grey's Anatomy, The L Word, Young Sheldon, Shameless, like some pretty. 
pretty great show. I thought I was supposed to do the name dropping, Corey. We we talked about this ahead of time. Oh, I sorry. think Corey's excited for this one. He has the <laughs> long am. the long list of questions today. <laughs> I'm very well, interested. I'm at it. Now. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've been doing this. I've been doing this for a long time. I started. Uh, I started in New York. I actually started in theater, but the, but the pay just sucked. <laughs> so. Oh my gosh! Yeah, while well, the arts <laughs> have to do things that, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's probably a little better if you're in the union. You're at one of the bigger stages, but uh, at the off Broadway theaters, it just wasn't cutting it. You know, you can only spoon off your daddy for so long before you have to go out and uh, make it happen. So then I started PAing in New York, and uh, I guess because I was cocky, <laughs> I got lucky and got in with some good people. So. That's that. But, you know, it's funny to hear you say that because I feel like, oh, man, you know, there's so much more I have to do and I'm not nearly as successful as X, Y and Z. But I guess everybody you can't really fall into that trap because everybody just starts doing that. And then that's not what it's about. and That's not what you want to be thinking as you're doing your stuff. So, yeah, it sounds like you have a drive to to keep going forward, which is how you become successful in the first place. So if if you're ever content with where you're at, then you're not really doing it right. <laughs> and everybody that we've had on the show that's been hyper successful or super talented, it's always like, are you done yet? And then that's just 1988. And then they're like, oh, yeah, and that's when I did X, Y and Z. And that's kind of how you are, because, you know, first off, one, I wouldn't even know you're as old as you are. And I hate to say it like that. Oh, my God. Until gosh. I went to IMDb. No, because you, you look at the movies. Because you look at the movies. And they look like they're from before you were born. And I'm like, how could she be an assistant director on Pet Cemetery? Like, wasn't that movie like on reruns when I was like a child? So, like, I look at you and you look like you're cryogenically frozen. So, I hate using the word old because that people hate that. It's a trigger <laughs> word for people. But I just couldn't believe that you've been doing this. When you say you've, you've done this for a long time, you really mean that. Uh, yeah, when I look back on some of those dates, I get a little uh, mortified myself. But yeah, you know, I think I just like what I'm doing. And, and the thing about being in the film business is, you know, we go to work and you guys understand this as well. You know, I wear a T-shirt and jeans to work every day. I don't I don't have to dress like a grown up. I remember when I graduated from college, my mom bought me a suit. And to this day, I've never put it on. I finally ended up getting it away. That's success, Drew Ann Rosenberg, never having to put on the suit that your Jewish mother buys you. Exactly. Exactly. It was a really nice suit. It's just, uh, ugh, I could not put it on. It was so uncomfortable. You know, I just like wearing my sweats and whatever. So uh, it's the perfect business to do that. And you just kind of walk around like a bunch of teenagers and hopefully you never grow old. So speaking of this business, the first question I want to ask you is, what is an assistant director? Because when you go on, so let me just, there's a whole list. I mean, everything from Along Came Polly to shows like Shameless to, um, again, every Stephen King thing ever to, uh, you know, movies with uh, Waterworld, you know, the most expensive movie ever made for at one point. All these movies, you're an assistant director and me being a guitar player. I don't know what that really means. <laughs> Can you explain it to people like me? I can. And uh, actually, I have a good story about that, too. So an assistant director is basically the person that you think of a, a construction site where a big fancy building is going up and the construction foreman has to coordinate with the architect and the electricians and the plumbers and the 
actors in my case. So, and basically what I do, what I do is I, I come on and prep and I organize the, the filming of the project, if you will. So I make the schedule. I talk to all the different you give departments. give Scorsese all of his pills and his like Sunday through Saturday little pill bottle thing and make sure that he's all right. No, that, okay. that would be Scorsese's <laughs> assistant. What I do as an assistant director is um. that I, uh, Make I facilitate all the filming of the picture so that everything gets done. So you're much more important than making sure he's on his antipsychotics. Yes. I okay. could, however, go to his assistant and say, make sure he's on his antipsychotics. <laughs> so that's your job is to go make sure his assistant is aware of the fact that he's acting like a crazy person on set and that that's not conducive to doing what you need to do as the assistant director wrangling it in. Yes. For example, I had a director, we were doing this fancy nightclub scene with all these gorgeous women. And this is a famous director who will remain nameless for the purposes of this podcast. And I just could not get him to focus on getting the work done because he was like flirting with all these (laughs) gorgeous women. So I called his wife and I said, why don't you come visit us on set? She came to and the day went much quicker after that. (laughs) Drew. That was brilliant. Wow. <laughs> that was like the dark side of the force. Yeah. Well, there've been some other things, but nothing really evil and nasty. Just, you know, a little bit of a a nudge. Nothing untoward as it would be. Well, so this is super interesting to me because I read somewhere that you were trained as a classical singer. And obviously you mentioned theater. You have a background in the arts. How, you know, when I think of film, I think about okay, I want to be an actor or something. I feel like a lot of people, if they want to go into film, they think about going into acting. How do you go from being interested in music and the arts to going into directing? Like, what's the path there? Because that's super interesting to me. Yeah, there, there is no one path. I mean, I think the, the easiest way to get into directing is to be a great writer and write your own projects and somehow get them made, which unfortunately I am not. I mean, I've written some of my own stuff, but I would say I'm a mediocre writer at best. And now I am smart enough now to get some of my really good writer friends. Uh, like I just made a short a uh, couple months ago called Amy's Gift. And I got one of my really good writer's friends to rewrite the whole thing for me. And uh, it's screening at a bunch of festivals now and doing really well. So that's cool. So, you know, actors sometimes want to direct. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And so then this incredible writer friend of mine just directed a movie of her own called uh, Gypsy Moon that I co-produced for her. And it's got a great cast. We have Lena Headey and Sam Worthington and Lala Anthony and... Um, Barbara Hershey. So that's going to be a really cool project. So, um, you know, which is why I like to do a little bit of everything because I just like being in the creative part of filmmaking and it is so collaborative and it really kind of depends on the dynamics of the personalities involved. You know, I mean, the, the job descriptions are always a little bit different based on who you're working with, but uh, if you want to be a director these days, just start directing, you know, just pick up a, a phone or a, cheap camera and just start making films. I mean, that's, you know, that the access but, is much better now. But how did you go from, from Boheme to all of a sudden, you know, telling, uh, you know, Stephen King, there's not enough dead animals in this thing. Yeah, just for the record, I've never worked with Stephen King, but I have worked on The Dark Half, which is a movie he, he wrote the book and George Romero directed. Oh, on, on, George A. Romero? Oh, only the guy... Like the, the the biggest horror film director of all, keep it keep it was it keep it scary or whatever. Uh, Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, but I'm saying no, but he always says keep it scary. Yeah, Night of the Living Dead oh, oh, was yeah. the movie that he made. But George yeah. A. Rom- 
but George, but he, everything he, he signs, he's like, keep it scared yeah, no, or he something. Was... <laughs> but uh, George A. Romero, so let's just start with that. You just happened upon the dark half with the guy that did the Night of the Living Dead. Go. Um, I was an established assistant director at that point, and they called me and asked me if I wanted to do the movie, and I said yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's never happened to me, so I can't relate. <laughs> well, so then let's go back. So what was your first real, like, directing experience, or, like, what was the, the tie between your being in theater to transitioning into directing? Was it Did you kind of start on your own, like you mentioned, or was did a job pop up? Like, how did you get into it? Um, so I was working at theater and I wasn't making any money and I was like, I really want to get into film. And, you know, I always loved movies, not so much TV back then, but mainly movies. I mean, now I love TV cause there's so much great stuff around, but so I, um, got a job as a reception. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any connections. So I got a job as a receptionist at a commercial house and then started PAing. you know, you guys know what PAs are production assistant on set, basically a gopher. We do, but we're but the Gen Pop, as uh, Siobhan <laughs> refers to them, may not know what a PA is. Those outside of the industry. <laughs> yes, let's put it that way. I mean, so PA is a production assistant, and it's basically, you know, your your foot in the door, get paid very little money, minimum wage at best, and you basically do whatever anybody tells you to do. You're a gopher uh, to the highest extreme. So I uh, I started production assistant work on a commercial, and then I met somebody who hired me on a TV series. And then my big break was um, I uh, got hired uh, to PA on a Woody Allen film. Oh, wow. uh, That job lasted like eight months and it was a great experience. And I learned so much from that. I mean, I was the one that would bring him to and from set. And my claim to fame was actually I made Woody Allen laugh. So that was a pretty big day for me. Is he, is he, is he, he makes other people laugh, but is he himself not a very laughy type of guy? He's very soft spoken. He is funny, but, but he's very quiet. He's very private. You know, the actors on the set, he would never give a full script to the actors. The only thing, you know, maybe a couple of the leads would get the full script, but the, the actors who were only in short scenes, you know, a small amount of scenes would only get the scenes that they were in. So he was very like, not secretive, but just sort of, uh, yeah, secretive about everything and, and, you know, to himself. But he, I, I had a good experience with him. I liked him. I mean, I didn't know him that well. So I, I don't know. Inter- reading all the stuff I'm reading, I mean, to, I hear pro and con about all of it. So it's, it's hard to know what really happened unless you were there, frankly. So. Well, I mean, he has one of my favorite quotes ever, which is, I'm not scared of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> so I... I, I, I find most of his quotes funny. I just didn't know if he himself was funny. And then I can imagine him being secretive because imagine you called his, his wife to come pick up his daughter and you didn't know. Well, this was years before any of that happened. So he was ma- when I worked with him, he was married. Maybe. So, <laughs> no, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't believe it, but I don't know anything. So, but, but you know what? Here's the thing. People need to realize that there's a big differentiation between art and who you are as a person, because there are plenty of people that were terrible people that made great art. And I mean, look, Rowan Polanski isn't even in the country. He's been, you made a movie Helter Skelter or, or whatever it was um, about Charles Manson. Well, Roman Polanski, who owned that house, has not been allowed in this country since 1969 or something like that. But he made The Pianist. And all this, uh, and all these movies, and all that um, that have won lots of awards. So you don't have to be the greatest person 
to be an awesome director. So I've learned, at least personally, to remove my personal emotion from, oh, I, I, I think Chuck Berry's a really weird person or was a weird person, but I really like, you know, Johnny B. Good. That's so true. And, you know, there's, there's, in my mind, I've worked for, as an assistant director, I work with a lot of directors and then I've also directed a bunch myself and there's different kinds of directors. There's the director that's inspiring and incredibly collaborative, like Jonathan Demme was, who I did Philadelphia with. And uh, then there's the director who's like, hold up. Philadelphia. Now, this is one I want. I was waiting for you to bring up because one, it's one of the most moving movies I've ever seen in my entire life. Two, it's one like every possible award. And three, in a time, you know, just after, not long after Freddie Mercury had passed away, there was like a whole obviously movement towards the end of the 80s and then obviously in the early 90s. But it really brought AIDS to the forefront uh, and, and humanized something that hadn't really been humanized to a lot of people for a long time. So not only is that movie incredibly moving, but I thought it was so culturally important. Can you talk about what we it was We had like? to watch it in school. We, that was like required curriculum when I was in, I don't remember what grade, but I remember seeing that. Yeah. But anyway, I'm sorry. Go, go on. I just watched it again a couple months ago and I just, it was, it brought back all, everything. I mean, to tell you the truth, I would say it was the best experience of my life for so many reasons. I mean, the script was just magnificent. And um, Ron Nieswiner wrote the script, who's now a director, producer in his own right. And um, did, one of the things about Jonathan was, uh, and he's passed away, which is really sad, but he was just a great human and just inspired and charismatic and everybody loved him. And he uh, did a couple things on that movie that were re really fearless. He insisted that we film in a live AIDS clinic. And this was in the early 90s when there was no cure. The science was not out yet. I so, mean, legitimately, people didn't. I, I mean, I guess scientists had a sense that it was transmitted through bodily fluids. But there was no, people were so scared of it. And there was no cure. It was, it was you know, fatal. You died for the most part. So, you know, the scenes where Tom Hanks goes in to the clinic to get treated, those, that was a, a real AIDS clinic. And, and I must admit, I was terrified, you know, because I was a second assistant director back then. And the, I'm the person that has to deal with all the background actors and, you know, interact with everybody. And I was really, really uncomfortable with the whole thing. But what it did when we actually went in and, and shot there was it humanized the whole thing. These people became real people to me. I became friends with these people. It, it, it brought the story uh, into my world and um, they've all died. But it was also the reason that I decided to start directing because I felt like the power of this story and the power of what you can bring to people by bringing the familiarity of a person's character of who they really are, you know, living, experiencing something that a transsexual goes through or that a homosexual goes through or somebody just from a completely different world from you um, makes you more compassionate, makes you makes you a better human being if the story's done well, which I think this story was. And, you know, Tom Hanks is just a rock star. I mean, he's one of my favorite actors. He and Joanne Woodworth were just two of the greatest human beings um, that I know. So it was just and Denzel was nice, too. I mean, it, it was just a, a wonderful experience on all fronts. So uh, it was really sad when Jonathan died way too soon. So, um, But that is why I wanted to go into film, you know, making films myself. 
So, but I didn't quit my day job. I kept assistant directing because one, I really enjoyed it and I got to work with, you know, incredible people. And two, I was really good at it. And three, they paid me a shitload of money. So it was hard to walk away. (laughs) (laughs) It seems to me, my understanding of the the first AD is that the it's one of it's probably one of the most underappreciated as far as like getting credit because it's underneath the big director name but the responsibility is huge because you're also responsible for the the units below because the director doesn't want to deal with all that bullshit um so it's kind of like the buck almost stops with you (laughs) so that nothing gets up to the director but uh also you need to make sure that everyone else is doing what they have going on so is that like uh are you a glutton for punishment is that is that what it is that you just love taking on that responsibility well let's see i'm really good at multitasking it's a very high stress job which i kind of thrive on uh i I played a lot of sports in college i played lacrosse and soccer and it's kind of like a team sport because you have to know what everybody's doing i I, you know i have to talk to everybody and collaborate with everybody Mm -hmm. and i do a lot of public speaking because i have to do like these days it's like with covid it's unbelievable but uh safety meetings and, you know, announcements all day long. So it's kind of a leadership role and um, time is money. So, you know, one hour on a film set is thousands and thousands of dollars. So the more efficient I can be in planning everything and coordinating everything, uh, the more efficient the company is. And, you know, it's a great bird's eye view of, I I love, I always wear a Comtex so I can hear the actors and I love watching filmmaking happen. I mean, I, had opportunities to, you know, not be on set and do like production managing and things like that. But that would take me away from the actual filming, which to me is really, really fun. So uh, it's, I'm kind of, it's kind of like, you know, where I like to be, I would say whatever capacity I'm in. So, yeah. Yeah. So what about working on films in the age of COVID now that you mentioned that? Like, I'm curious what it's like, because obviously for us as musicians, a lot of things stopped and they changed a lot. So I'd, I'd be interested to hear what it's like now after all these Yeah, how you know, is The Bachelor even being made right now? Like, how is that even legal? Uh, yeah, well, when, uh, when the, the world shut down in March, I was working on a um, sweaty rock and roll musical uh, called Daisy Jones and the Six. I don't know if you guys have heard of the book, but... Uh, Reese Witherspoon's company so. was, so. it was a big bestseller. I'm a guitarist. I never learned how to read Drew. <laughs> I, I know that firsthand. No, but um, so it's about, it's loosely based on the dynamics of the relationships in Fleetwood Mac. So it's about the biggest rock and roll band in the seventies and the love triangle between the lead guitarist, the, the singer and the guitarist wife. And it's just really juicy, great stuff. And Nikki Caro, who just did Mulan and who uh, directed Whale Rider, one of my favorite movies, was a director. And we had, you know, put our schedule together. I'd been on the film for a couple months and, you know, a 25 day shoot. And of the 25 days, about 15 were at nightclubs, you know, sweaty, rock and roll with great music. We had uh, Neil Young's producer uh, as our music. Tony, uh, Tony Berg was our music uh, producer and great you know just a great group but when COVID happened it was like not that one's done we're not doing there's no way you can the short answer is there's no way you can do a production like that now so that's been postponed so then uh when things started back up in uh September I took a uh, job on Grey's Anatomy which is what I'm working on now but the great thing about Grey's is they're they're uh writing the episodes to take place in COVID so 
most of the time the actors have masks on anyway. And we get tested three days a week. Not only do we wear face coverings that they give us, they have to be their face coverings, but we wear shields as well when we're on set, which is a real pain in the ass. I mean, you just... Do you make sure that you have a good COVID tester so they don't get like into the back of your brain? Because oh, I know Ugh. that there's some people who are like, okay, and like, it make time. it like not that painful. And then there's other people that are like, let me see if I can touch your cerebellum. Oh, it's freaky. That That's the deep dive test. We do the um, 10 seconds in each nostril three days a week. I mean, the worst part about it is it always, it always makes me sneeze, but it's it doesn't hurt really. I just usually turn my head to the left and cough. <laughs> but, you know, the, the fact that all of us are getting tested so much is, you know, it's a big comfort. I mean, we're still really careful and we stay spread out to the best of our ability, but it's, you know, it's a thing. It's definitely a thing. So... And now we were supposed to be back up and running two weeks ago, and then we pushed a week, and then we pushed another week. And, you know, the hospitals are full in L.A. right now, so who the hell knows what's going to happen. I don't think we're going to even go back so, and for another couple of weeks. But um, we'll see. Fingers crossed. But it's, it's doable. It's difficult. They've shortened our work hours, which is great. I mean, normally a straight day was 12 hours, and now a straight day is 10 hours, so that's kind of nice. I'm not used to that. I feel oh like, my gosh. I feel like I'm doing bankers hours or something. <laughs> 11th hour they slept. <laughs> so COVID aside, what is a day in the life? Like, I mean, you know, like let's say you're on set for a movie or something. I mean, what, what would like start to finish? Starting a, with a your beauty day? plan, because like literally you look like you've de-aged. Like you, you look like so you, young. Yeah, you look like, amazing. I mean, 12 totally hours a day, I would be like, like, I, I feel like I should, we, we should be going to the club together and hanging out. Like the last time I saw you, we were in, we were in <laughs> Studio City. Good lighting. Yeah, yes. it's a 15 bucks on Amazon. Oh, you got one too. Yeah, this this saved my life. You know, I was like, oh my God, I love you. I want to carry you around. In the age of Zoom time. meetings, you can't live without it now. <laughs> so the day in the life of starting starting with the Biore strips. Uh, starting with the Biore strips. Uh, well, let's see. Wait, I always show up early because in LA, you never know about traffic, even though with COVID, the traffic's a lot less. Then uh, we, the first thing we do is we rehearse with the actors privately, just the director and the actors and the cinematographer is usually there and maybe a prop person if there's, especially in grays, there's always a lot of props, medical stuff and everything. So we rehearse with the actors and then we invite the heads of the crew of each department to come in and we show them a rehearsal of the actors Then they leave and we light for, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes and uh, you know, I, I do not take a break from start to finish. It's like I'm sort of the engine of the crew, I feel like, uh, in this position, depending on the crew. Some crews are more motivated than others. But I, I feel like I have to constantly be moving us forward and thinking about the next thing. It's kind of like anticipating all the time, which drives my my close friends nuts because I'm always like, well, 20 minutes from now, da, 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 you know, and I always know exactly how long. Do you ever empathize with the people that made The Wizard of Oz for putting Dorothy on like cocaine? Did you see that movie about Judy Garland? That was really good. The one that. Yeah, Renee, uh, I didn't. It's no. very, very moving. But the point is, is they use for those that don't know, they threw a bunch of stimulants at her so that she was very happy on that yellow brick road so they could get the best out of her. On top of the fact that they were poisoning the Tin Man and there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on with that movie. But like, do you ever wish that people had that pep <laughs> yeah, in their step? Did you see uh, the Queen's Gambit by any chance? That's a big Siobhan hit. plays all the violin on that show. 
Are you kidding? I do. Yeah, the composer is from Miami, so that's so. Siobhan's a real rock star, Drew. Like, don't you understand that Corey and I are just like the the meat and potatoes, and she's the pudding. Well, I I listened and watched your music stuff. It's it's amazing. You guys are awesome. I was really really impressed. So. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you. behind every smart man is a smarter woman. And that's why Siobhan is on our show. Because everyone's <laughs> like, oh, he's very lowbrow. And he interrupts everyone. Then Siobhan's like, so tell me something introspective. <laughs> By the way, I was on the show you were just talking about. It's very nice, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, on the Queen's Gambit, she's at an orphanage at the beginning. And they're giving the kids uh, tranquilizers or whatever to keep them from acting up. But yeah. I'm sure that's not made up. I'm sure that's real, too. It's pretty... Pretty crazy. That was dark. Yeah. I, I yeah. It's crazy. Uh, what were we talking about? We were talking about oh, day um, in the life. So life. You- uh, yeah, there's always uh, sometimes there's more drama than other times. Uh, can we have a dramatic day? So like give us one of the most dramatic days. Cause is there any is there a story you can tell us about like, like only people in the industry would understand, but like I was with Kevin Spacey and all of a sudden he didn't get his McDonald's right and then he threw yeah, the script down. Um so we were, I was working on a movie in Ireland called The Seventh Stream, and um, Shab- uh, 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 Saffron Burroughs was the female lead, and Scott Glenn was the male lead. And uh, Saffron is British, and Scott is uh, from the U.S. and lived right near the World Trade Center. And we got over there and started filming, and 911 happened. And um, it was the day after we shut down, which was really nice. The Irish, I was, there were only two Americans on the show, the producer and myself and Scott three. And uh, so the day nine, one, the day after nine, one, one, we shot down for a day and then we came back and it was the first day that Saffron and Scott had to work together. They'd never met each other. And we were out on this, you know, bluff and we had to shoot this, you know, heavy love scene between them. And, um, Saffron made, I like Saffron. She's a nice woman. I I just think because she wasn't American, she didn't understand uh, that she really pushed a button. She said something like, well, you know, I guess it's about time Americans feel what it's like to be attacked on your own soil. And it was too soon. She was too soon. Oh, wow. Scott just went crazy. And then you know, so everyone like stormed off for like 30 minutes and I'm the one that's like, you know, trying to get us back on track. And, you know, my director, John Gray is like, Drewski called me Drewski. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I was like, well, let's just try it. You know, so we brought them back in and they have to do this intense love scene and, and they were almost together. So need to isn't that what most love is like anyway? I feel like every time I've ever made love, it's like I'm almost crying and hurting inside. So, I mean, I guess it's good sense memory, right? Yeah, I'm, that's okay. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm, we're we're that's sorry. Okay. Oh. We're, we're sorry. <laughs> um, let's see. What's a better juicy one? Um, well, in the... Uh, tell- oh, you can tell anything on this show, I promise. <laughs> no one watches it, Drew. No one cares. No, it's only my so, mom. So, um, back in the 90s, back in the 90s in New York, uh, you guys always talk about psychedelic drugs and stuff. We always was one did episode. Of- one episode. <laughs> <laughs> my mom was so about- mad about that, by the way. <laughs> Just so you know, my mom was like, I'm so glad that I did not know that at the time. And I had to go back and figure out which friend that was. That was Adam, wasn't it? 
Ah, I can't believe I let you go to Florida. And I'm like, Mom, I'm 38 fucking years old. It's fine. You were asking about, you know, how we keep people awake. Back in the 90s, everybody did coke. So I was working on the movie The Bad Lieutenant. My director, uh, Abel Ferrara, you know, we were shooting all nights. So we broke for lunch at like 11 o'clock at night. And my director's like, hey, Drew, you got to go out and get us some blow. So I was like, okay, give me some money. That's part of being an assistant director is being the blow girl. No, it's not. No. Do you still not. have connections? Because no, I feel like coke is still a thing. Uh, Sorry, you can old. continue. Yeah, just ignore him at this point. Other people. <laughs> <Just> keep going. <laughs> She's taking it seriously. Well, I thought about it for a second. I was like, hmm. I, you know what I do now to stay awake? I eat chocolate cover espresso beans whenever I have to yes. shoot. Yes. They, they work. So, um, that was kind of a that was kind of a, a wild night. So I got back, and my producer was like, "Where have you been?" I was like, uh, "I don't know. Um, that's not a really. I can't. I feel like if I tell <laughs> stories about personal people, that I'd be uh, you know telling tales out of school." So you can uh, you can change the names to protect the innocence we'll if, if it's a good enough story. Change some names into some details. Yeah. <laughs> Ben engages in hyperbole all the time, so it's completely fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean the amount of uh, the amount of like stories I've told that like would get people put away for years, but then like you know they need to figure out who the X and Y are. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well we'll keep talking, and if I think about anything, I'll if I something comes to me, I'll I'll bring it up. How's that? But hold on, wait a minute. So you're going getting some stuff, and then you went off and did something like. What did you go and do, Drew? Because I, I partied with you personally, and you're a lot of fun. In fact, I was at Lil Wayne's birthday party as he was DJing, <laughs> and you're like, you want to go dance? And I'm like, okay, because I'm like the rock and roller sitting at the club. And then Drew's like, let's go dance. And you were like the most free, having a blast. Lil Wayne's just DJing. Yeah. No, not Lil Wayne. Lil John. I'm sorry. <laughs> Stoner brain. Lil John. But you're, you're a fun party person. So you need to go uh, get some hopefully fish scale cocaine and you're out and about, but you got distracted. I mean, and anyone that knows that's ever done anything like that knows that it's always a chore because you don't just go over there and get and go, thank you and leave. You have to hear about a diatribe or something, right? Yeah, yeah. So I get back. <laughs> My producer's like, uh, where the hell have you been? Because I was a little late getting back. I lie furiously. And then we rap at like, and this has only happened once, mind you. I'm a very responsible. Is that what you say to all normally. the guys, girls, the LBGTQ plus community? I do. And then so when we rap that night, there was this uh, after hours club that we used to go to. And Abel back then was like, well, he still is kind of like a bad boy celebrity. And uh, this famous rock star musician, who you would all know, uh, was hanging out with us. And she was hitting on me, but I was too blazed to uh, even pick up on the fact that she was hitting on me until later on uh, when I tried to hang out with her a couple days later. She was like, no, I'm not going to talk to you. And that was the end of that. So I thought, oh, okay. Don't ever scorn women, Drew. This is something I've learned about women. Oh, okay. Now you tell a story, Benny. Let's hear it. What's, no one wants to hear my story. Okay, I'll tell a story. So my friend <laughs> Paul easy. Geary, yeah. my friend Paul Geary, who we had on the show just before you, um, he, I went to go meet up with him at Sundance Film Festival. And he calls me and says, hey, I met this super cool person on the plane. 
She's like done all these movies and she's a big deal. Like meanwhile, Paul's a big deal. So I'm like, who does Paul think is a big deal? But we were going out to Sundance Film Festival. So I guess there was big deals. Big deal. So he's like, yeah, <laughs> let's go out for lunch. Bring, bring the girls. I was in a band with two women that were very nice. And we'll go meet and you can meet Drew. And then I met you and it turns out like, didn't you guys just sit next to each other on the plane and you're just two chatty Cathy's and decided you're BFFs now? And then that's how we met technically? Yes, I, and I, I lost touch with Paul, but he is awesome. Like, he is like the coolest dude. And we, we just can fix that. Yeah, yeah. I got to call him. He's so friggin' busy. It's like, it's hard to keep, you know, people call him. Sure, like kids are in preschool together or something. It's really hard to. <laughs> he's in Vegas now. He had a good, he had a good year. So he's chilling by the pool. And let me tell you, we've just, as a, an aside, I would love for you to come meet up with us. And I know that Paul would be cool with it too. Um, we're going to go to Vegas when this whole COVID thing's over. I'm going to bring, uh, go out there and we'd love for you to come and hang out. Um, if you decide you ever want to take a day or even a moment or a minute off, but, uh, I would love to have you talk to, to Paul again, because I know Paul, because Paul's one of those guys, just like our buddy Scott, who does his show. who's always like, Oh, I should call that person for seven years and then doesn't do it. And then the other person like you goes, Oh, I love Paul, but I never called him. Listen, life is too short. Call Paul. And that's a metaphor for everyone listening. Call the Paul in your life. Call the Drew in your life. Because you guys all secretly love and admire each other. Why aren't you just calling each other? What is that weird thing in between you? Do you need to know, like Heidegger, like the German philosopher Heidegger said, the theory of inauthenticity versus authenticity. If COVID-19 has taught us anything, it should be living authentically to appreciate our lives and to call Paul. Letting me go. <laughs> You know what? I'm going to call Paul. I am. And I would love to hang out with you in Las Vegas, all of you. It would be awesome. I can't wait till we can hang out again because uh, yeah. <laughs> I love to have parties. We have a kick-ass party here at our house every, every other year because it's huge and it's a lot of work. And we were all set to do it this year and then uh, that didn't happen. So we are definitely doing it in September, assuming... Uh, the world opens up then. That's when my birthday is, so my husband can't say no to me. He has to let me do it. So, and and I always have a DJ at the party so we can dance. So, oh, awesome. um, you know, I'm nice. a DJ, right? Well, you just have me come DJ your party. I'll come DJ your party. Is that the only way I get an invite? Because there was before COVID that I've never gone to a, a Drew Ann Rosenberg party unless you were at the party that I was at and then you were the party. No, you know what? I know that's not true. You know why? Because you sent me music for one of my parties. So I must have invited you. Even if I didn't want to, I would have invited you because you sent me music. <laughs> you know what? I think you do, I think I do remember talking through a playlist or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, Corey, what about you? What do you, uh, how did you get into this? I'm just curious because I, <laughs> I don't know you guys that well. I know uh, the Ben Master, but. Uh. Yeah, well, I appreciate you asking. Uh, how did I get into, involved with these people here <laughs> I, uh, I stumbled he I stumbled into I stumbled day. into working with Ben and I have not been able to escape it's been you a 5150 amp yeah I, I had to... an I had an amp that he liked to to borrow so he wouldn't have to carry stuff so that's how we met um and and yes th through a series of unfortunate events uh, I'm still here and uh, we're uh I'm a musician and I played with Ben so we, we we linked up and played in a lot of different bands and did some studio work and uh and just 
we've been pretty fortunate that recently uh, some of that music has caught on and we get to meet Siobhan, uh, who joined forces. It's very like, it's weird how all the connections came together, you know, and then now I'm the guy that sits in this room and, and edits all the stuff that we have fun making. And then Siobhan was introduced to, to me through a friend of ours that was fa- fatally taken away from us. We'll leave it at that. It's kind of uh, uh, ambiguous at this moment. Um, but our friend Ollie, who's the guy that played a lot of the music on our band Lost Symphony, who's the sponsor of this LostSymphony.com um, that you were talking about, um, <laughs> he called me when I was in the middle of DJing a wedding and said, I just found the perfect the perfect musician. She was playing Vivaldi. He was in some festival. I don't know. Was it Belgium or something like that? Um, no, it was in Fort Myers. <laughs> so she's, he was in Fort Myers, Florida with, with Siobhan's band Starset, who, by the way, just passed, surpassed 2 billion uh, streams on the interwebs. She was just in Forbes as well. So she gives us legitimacy. Whoa. This is our proof of concept is Siobhan. Because again, if you ever want to get legitimacy, just find a really smart, talented woman and then ride her coattails <laughs> all the way to the bank. And that's been my key to success the whole way. But I met Siobhan because Ollie called me and told me that she was the best musician. And she just got on a plane and just showed up at my house. It's like, where's, where's the music? And we've been friends ever since. Oh, wow. Isn't that crazy how things come together? I feel like there's so much randomness like in the creative world where it's just like something can happen for like 30 seconds and it totally changes your course. No, I was just going to say, I, th- I think you have to just trust your gut with some of that too. I mean, some of the people that I've had the best relationships and the, the best connections to are the ones I just meet them and we just feel simpatico, you know? And, and I think mm-hmm. that sounds like what you're mm-hmm. saying too. And it's, you know, I remember growing up, I grew up like in a traditional Jewish, well, traditional, I, I grew up in a middle-class Jewish family. My mother was a lawyer and my father was a doctor and it was like sunrise sunset <laughs> sunrise sunset so what I was don't derail her the day. I always I you know I and I don't even know why this was the case but I always just valued creative people above all else I always thought they were the coolest they were the most interesting they were the most productive and it was like I just thought, you know, I want to be a creative person. I I can't go into one of these fields where I don't feel like I'm expressing myself in some way. So, I mean, you just sort of have to trust your heart and just kind of go that way, I think. And that transfers into meeting people, too. So speaking of of meeting people, uh, do you have any examples of a time when, you know, earlier in your career, you, you worked with a group of people or a certain person, uh, maybe just in a fleeting moment that came back later in your career? Well, it's interesting. Uh, a lot of actors that I worked with on Abel, with Abel on uh, King of New York were not famous at the time I worked with him. They were, uh, so Wesley Snipes was in that movie and oh, wow. uh, Lawrence Fishburne and uh, David Caruso None yeah. of them were famous. <laughs> Nobody's. The Matrix yeah. sucked. Nobody watched that one. Lawrence Fishburne. He's the yeah. best. What are you talking about? No, Lawrence. He's, he's, oh, he's oh. just derailing okay. the conversation. Totally derailing. Yeah, he's just, okay. just ignore Ben okay. at this point. We're beyond that. <laughs> hold on, hold on. I, I'm going to do what I did in my meeting the other day. I'm going to make this way easier for everybody for just a few moments. <laughs> okay. You have to explain gonna, to the people that aren't watching the video what you're doing. Okay, I'll be right back. This is, uh, <laughs> I have a cat that was actually crocheted for me by uh, 
Haley, uh, my fiance's daughter's friend's mother. I don't know why she thought <laughs> it necessary to crochet me a cat, but she made me this super cool cat. And it's just, I feel like its eyes are so earnest that like it just listens and hears you and just like, sure. But the thing is, are we still going to hear you? Because that's the problem. Well, I mean, I could, talk as, the, I could talk as Velvel, but I feel like that'd be very weird and even more derailing for Drew. So we won't go there yet, but I'll it's just let true. her tell her story. So I'll just, I'll shut myself off. So now let's play a game of what was the question that we asked Drew that now nobody remembers that she didn't what was get her, to answer. What's her day like every day? We started Peoria Strips. <laughs> we got like to like Woody Allen. <laughs> then we got the That's blow. That's true though. We and didn't then know, we're no, supposed you're to right, somebody. And then, oh, we she, didn't finish. Yeah, we didn't finish. What like What's the second half Or of even your day being like? a singer. <laughs> being a singer and then like, why did she stop singing? She said she didn't make a lot of money on Broadway, but like, how did you stop singing? Because she has such a wonderful voice if you've ever heard it. Um, I mean, I, I kept singing for the most part. I, I just didn't focus on it as much. I mean, when I moved to New York, Geraldine Fitzgerald was doing a uh, musical workshop. And uh, my friend's mother was Carol Hall, who wrote, you know, I'm uh, getting my act together and taking out, you know, she worked with Tommy Tunes on Broadway. And I did some stuff with them. And I, I did some recording for friends. And uh, my first short that I did, I sang on that. So I, I sing all the time, but just not in any kind of venue or just for myself. I sing when I'm happy. I sang at my wedding. <laughs> um, I scared the crap out of my husband because I was going off and having these secret meetings. And he's like, what are you going to be doing? You're not going to embarrass me, are you? Um, so, I mean, I still sing. And, <laughs> and I love doing musical movies, too. I did a movie a couple years ago with Christopher Ashley, who's um, a big Broadway musical director who won the... Uh, Tony uh, two years ago for the one about uh, Come From Away. I don't know if you guys saw that. Anyway, so it was great to be on set and hear music all day long and work with all these actors. And then that's one of the reasons I was so excited about this show that I was on that shut down. It was, you know, rock and roll music. I mean, we were doing music the whole time. Mm -hmm. so I'm trying to merge kind of my interests. I mean, I, I would love to do more music in movies. That for me would be like quintessential kind of thing to do so very cool we'd love to do something with you musically yeah drew just so you know but the the i'll come back as benny now um <laughs> i will put this out there not only would i love to see you reconnect with paul geary who is one of the greatest guys in the music industry just greatest people on the planet because i love paul he's just genuinely one of the nicest people but i've heard you sing i know you're a fantastic singer you're, you're an A1 personality because clearly if you look at all the people you've worked with to wrangle and do what you've done and to be so yeah. successful at it, um, especially I don't want to say a woman living in a man's world, but I have to imagine living in, in, in the movie industry that you've and hearing what's going on with so much stuff that you've had to contend with so much. How do you maintain being a strong feminine personality in a world where the, I feel like it's been pushed down a lot? Um, you know, there, there are different types of assistant directors. There are the ones that yell and scream and, you know, bully everybody and terrorize people. And then I, I like to think that I'm smarter. You than just call their wise. Yeah. I, I like to think that I'm smarter than they are and that I know more. I have access to information that they don't have. So, my attitude toward people, not that I'm smarter than anybody, but that I'm, I, I know what I'm, that sounded, that sounded really arrogant. I meant um, that I know what I need to do. I know what my job is and that 
Um, I'm just going to share with them the information they need to do their job well. And then if they start to mess up and, and stuff falls through the cracks, then I'll start to micromanage them a little bit. But I never do it in like an abrasive, con uh, con uh, confrontational kind of way. I, I do think that sometimes men have a tendency to let their testosterone get in the way and they get in these, you know, fights. And, and I just, I don't have an ego about that kind of stuff. It's not about who's the boss or who's the best. It's just about who can get this done and, you know, how do we, how do we work together and get it done? So my attitude is always to come from a nice, respectful place. And that generally works. And I, and I, I know I've been doing it so long now that I know what I'm doing and I don't, I don't have to question myself. I just have to give them the information and, uh, it, it generally works well that way for me. I mean, it's also a matter of personalities. I mean, there are some directors I get along with famously, and then there's some that I just feel like they're on a different planet. I mean, uh, directors that aren't good communicators are really hard to work with because you're always trying to second guess them and figure out. Can you give us an example of a director that's not a good communicator that's a good director? Because I feel like that's the most important part of directing, but maybe there's some mad scientist out there that's like, hey, I'll confuse everybody, but then I'll get what I want. Because you said Neil Young, and that made me think, because Neil Young, one of the famous... <laughs> Sounds like you, Ben. One of the famous things that he did, would he, he'd call in his band and be like, okay, let's practice the songs. And he'd record it, and then he'd be, and then he'd be like, cool, when we come in to do the album? Oh, it's done. You, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? And I feel like, have you worked with anybody where you're like, I don't understand anything that's going on. And then the movies come out and you've been like, oh my God, it's LA Confidential and we have awards. Yeah, well, the, the, there's a very successful television director who does big shows who, it, the ones that I have the most trouble with are the cinematographers who become directors because they don't come from story and they don't come from character and they, they're generally not very good with the actors. They kind of just leave the actors alone to do their thing. So when you so the cinematographers are always just thinking visually and there's not necessarily a logic to the visuals. It's just a cool visual. So there's one in particular that I just, you know, we hated each other. By the end of it, we were just like, oh, my God, you know, how does this pe person work as much as they do? Because he just didn't do anything that made any sense to me. So I couldn't I couldn't guess what he was thinking or try to stay one step ahead of him or try to facilitate it. And um, that's happened with another director more recently too. And sure enough, he's a cinematographer. So I, I just think it, it's kind of a point of departure. Like they just have a very different frame of reference. So you prefer director slash cinematographer, but not cinematographer slash director. I prefer directors who are either writers or actors or storytellers who come from character rather than visual. And um, that's not to say one's better than the other. I just, I prefer working with people who work that way. And, um, you know, my, I worked with Nikki Caro for two months, uh, who's just a rock star. I just love working with her. And she just comes completely from the character and completely from the story. And for me that, you know, that that's how I work and that makes the most sense to me. Yeah, I wanna make it beautiful. I wanna make visuals that, you know, engross you and, and bring you into the story and, and you know, uh, augment the story. And But I don't want to start with that. I want to start from the story. So, you know, from, the, from what's happening in the story. In, in a situation where you are working with someone that you're butting heads with and you're on, you know, you know sometimes 
long stretches of time where you have to work together. You don't have a choice. Uh, how do you handle that situation? And what, like, what techniques do you use to keep things moving sm- smoothly? Um, I have to go against my nature and just sit back and not try to uh, anticipate what they want and, you know, expedite for them. Normally, I, I try to stay one step ahead. But if I have a director like that, then I just... Um, then I just step back and wait for them to tell me what they want. Uh, I mean, that's kind of, I don't like having to do that, but um, it seems like the best way to handle it. Sorry, I have low battery. How, uh, I have 13%, but I'm okay for a couple more minutes. How much longer? Are we going to be a while? Should I grab my... So, we're, yeah, this, ep- this episode is actually going to wrap up in, in just a couple minutes. You're getting 2020 <laughs> by your computer right now. And in fact, it the computer just gave knows. us an assist because... We, we like to do this in two parts. So the, the, the first part is kind of like we're priming the puff. Like, you know this, the fluffer. We're fluffing you. You know what I mean? Like, are you feeling good? Are you ready? I don't know that it's are you, are you do are, you know, are you ready to go? Like, do you need anything? Can we get you some coffee? Maybe some chocolate covered espresso beans? And then the second one. The second one, we do the deep dive where it's like the deep tissue massage <laughs> where we want to know about like the inner workings, the introspection, the inside, below the vapid, you know, like rack uh, shot that has no meaning or whatever, but it's just beautiful and the, the aspect ratio is just right and the lighting's perfect, but there's no reason for it. We want to know why the character matters. And that's part two. So anyways, yes, we're going to be taking a break very soon. Um, <laughs> in fact, you know, if we want to wrap this up, Ben, you're more than welcome to. Well, don't, Siobhan needs to wrap it up because she's the one that wraps everything up. Oh, well, I don't know. I feel like we barely got started. But yeah, I mean, we're, we're here. We've reached the end, I guess, of our first part with Drew Ann Rosenberg. But so you got to stick around for part two, because we've got so many stories yet right. to uncover. So I'm, I'm really excited. And, you know, thank you so much for being yeah. with us. And Drew, uh, is there anything that we need to know uh, that we can tell our listeners slash viewers slash other people um, to find anything that you're promoting? Like you were talking about your short film that's going around. Um, like where can everyone go to see all this stuff? Like, what are you currently doing that we can go see now on our Netflix world? Okay. Um, good to know. Good question. Thanks. So my short film is called Amy's gift and uh, it stars Danielle Savory from station 19, uh, the TV series spinoff on Grey's Anatomy and, uh, Goya Robles who starred in get shorty, which is a great series if you haven't seen it. And uh, that's next playing at the Santa Fe Film Festival in February. So you could check that out there. And uh, it's won three awards so far. Hopefully we'll win another one soon. It won the only three. Wow. Congratulations. Only three. So far, only three. Yes. (laughs) So far. Good. I'm glad there's an ellipsis at the end of that. And then can, (laughs) can you list off maybe some movies that like assuming you're like, me and I'm on my couch with my fiance thinking to myself, I don't have anything better to do than just find movies. What movies can we go see and be like, all right, let's put, let's see what this assistant director lady Rosenberg did. You know, like she worked with Harvey Keitel. Okay. And she like Woody Allen. All right. She's a, she's a trained singer. Okay. I got it. She directs, but what can we see? We saw Philadelphia. That movie is unbelievable. I encourage anyone. Yeah. If you haven't seen L.A. Confidential, that's a great film. You should see that. Uh, another movie I did called Running on Empty uh, is a great film, if you've never seen that. Two years ago, uh, I did a movie called Five Feet Apart, which uh, 
Oh my gosh, I saw that. I saw that on a plane, I think, and I, I didn't finish it. It was so good. <laughs> Who's in it? Can we can we can you give us a synopsis? Um, Cole Sprouse is in it and uh Haley, uh what's Haley's last name? I always blank on her last name. I'll think of it in one second. Um <laughs> And Haley Richardson and uh, Justin Baldoni directed it. He stars in Jane the Virgin. And, you know, we made it for like $10 million. It's already grossed over a hundred million. It's the story of, uh, it's like, a, it's like a Romeo and Juliet story about two teenagers who uh, have cystic fibrosis, which is this really horrible disease. And did we lose her? I think we lost her. <laughs> I think she actually got 2020 five yeah. feet apart. So, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Drew literally 2020 herself. In fact, we have a frozen screen. I'm sure she's going to be so psyched. Corey, you can just like edit something in. <laughs> but you guys are just going to have to come back because, like, I don't know about you. Like, I think that's ridiculous. I mean, literally, Drew is one of those type of people that you could continue on for four hours and then she'll be like, oh, and yes, I did this. And you're like, what? <laughs> like, at the end, drop something like yeah, incredible. She, yeah. Like, literally, go on to imdb.com. And look up Drew Ann Rosenberg and then see the 57 films in her filmography that she, just as an assistant director. That's not as a producer, as a writer, as a director. It's ridiculous. And you've been 2020. Thank you for checking out this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-d.com and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. Uh, we have new shows every Sunday and Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. This week's throwback clip is from episode 6 featuring MTV's Cara Maria Sorbello. Check it out. But every time I turn something on and I see you, you're like falling off a bridge. Someone's like pushing you. Someone's fighting, grabbing hair. Like I'm just like, I, I feel like you like this a lot. I, you're wrong. Um, it pays well, and I've sold my soul. So <coughs> that's the really, club. Except I'm not getting paid that's, well. That's where I mean, like, it's like how much would you, you know, how much is your soul worth? And for me, um, that's that's. MTV, that, did, did you MTV guys say, say that? I accept it. <laughs> Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast.